Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to our third episode of Investing Compass. My name is Shani Jayamana and I'm an investment specialist for Morningstar Australia. And I'm here with my co-host, Mark LaMonica, who runs the Individual Investor Business in Australia. Our last two episodes covered share investing and dividends. Yeah, so third episode today. It doesn't sound Mm -hmm. like much because today we recorded our 50th webinar. Mm -hmm. You were on 12 of them, Shani. It feels like 50 for me. Okay, well, still, (laughs) nevertheless, 50. So my original plan is I was going to get champagne for us today, Mm -hmm. but I have a doctor's appointment and I didn't really want to show up drunk (laughs) while also lying to the doctor about how much I drink. Yeah, so how about we get to it? Do you want to introduce our topic for today, Mark? We're going to talk about investing myths today. Um, and, you know, the reason that we wanted to do this is as humans, we obviously get drawn into stories and they have a really big influence on behavior that we have. So um, we want to, and, and just we naturally make sense of our lives through narratives, right? And investors, we hear stories from other investors, particularly people that may be older, have more experience, our friends, et cetera. And that can really influence our behavior. So I'm sure there's a ton of these we can do. I think we're going to do three today. Um, but if there are any other investing myths that anyone has, or things, or any other myths, or really any like other myths, conspiracy theories. Yes, yeah, Johnny's yeah. very into conspiracy <laughs> theories. Anything on John Benet Ramsey, send that through. Um, but if there's anything else you guys want us to talk about, send it through the questions. We'll do them afterwards. But we want to talk about three of these today. So, Johnny. What are we doing today? Yeah, so we're talking about investing myths. Um, and the reason we think it's worthwhile talking about it is because myths can lead to bad behavior. Um, and this is because of a couple of factors. So the first is that many of these narratives that people put around investing are based in history. Uh, and as investors, we have to be forward looking. So um, if I had to get another tattoo, it would probably be um, past performance is not an indicator of future performance on my forehead. Um, Do you reckon that you would still let me get on camera, Mark? On your forehead. Yeah, probably (laughs) not. So that would not, that would not. Would you uh, increase my spots on these webinars? Yeah, no, I think you'd be off the webinars. Luckily, we're doing a podcast. (laughs) You can still do the podcast, but not so much the webinars. Yeah, face for radio. Um, But yeah, so the other factor um, is because many people attribute their successes to smart choices they made while discounting failure to bad luck or unforeseen circumstances. Um, so we're going to start with investments in property. Um, if there is one thing that I've learned since um, I've sort of started working at Morningstar is that um, Australia's, Australians love investing in property. And that's sort of um, from my experience as well growing up in Australia. Yeah, I mean, mine too. So obviously, you can probably tell from my accent that I did not grow up in Australia, although I lived here when I was in fifth grade. Um, but I've been here six years. And yeah, obviously, I... Uh, I was amazed, I think, at some of the, I don't know if obsession is the right word, but uh, the, the interest in property. Um, and, you know, we looked at a couple stats around property, and obviously we're going to talk about property now, but uh, we looked at self-managed super funds. So 15% from an asset allocation perspective is direct property in self-managed super funds. And there was a recent survey that came out by Money Magazine, and they found that Australians thought investing in real estate was more secure than the share market, gold, cash, and fixed interest, which is 
pretty much everything, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's a reason that Australians are so into property. And so over the last 25 years, median house prices have been increased by 412%. And uh, median unit prices have gone up 316%. And, and that compares to a return from the ASX All Ordinaries Index um, but of 261%. So these stats that come from... Um, they come from Aussie, and it just sounds like it's irrefutable that housing is a better investment. Um, but what do you think, Mark? Um, if I had that tattoo, I'd probably point to it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, exactly <laughs> right. So obviously, you know, number one, we are talking about historical returns. And Shani said in the beginning, we need to focus on the future as investors, right? That's the whole point. Um, so the real question is, are those returns going to happen again? Um, and, you know, I think it's important to note for everything, not just property, that Historical returns occurred in a very specific environment. Um, and there are lots of different factors um, in that environment that influence how property um, performed. So I think the first thing we'll do is we can probably step back and take a look at that current environment um, to see if some of those factors over the last 25 years we think will also have the same impact on property for the next 25 years. Um, but one thing to think about is let's say those returns repeat themselves. So they occur again, um, what would happen? So that means in 25 years, the, uh, the median property price would be $2.9 million um, for a house, uh, $2.1 million for a unit. Um, and that's in 2043. So this data is a couple years old for those of you that can do math. Like um, five years from now in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's particularly sort of in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so Sydney um, median house would be 6.3 million. Um, down in Melbourne, 5.8 million. So that seems pretty outrageous, right? Yeah, so it's obviously pretty far out into the future. So um, while those numbers are pretty staggering, we need to think of them in future dollars. Um, and more importantly, we also need to understand that those gains over the past 25 years didn't happen in isolation. Um, for one thing, there has been a pretty significant reduction in the level of interest rates. So um, we had an episode about share investing before, and we talked about interest rates. They've come down significantly. So in 1993, mortgage rates were at 9.5%. Um, and I looked the other day, and now it's in the twos. So this drop has had a huge impact on housing prices. Um, when we look at this, it's important to think about how people actually buy houses. Um, so the first thing that people typically do is go to a mortgage calculator and punch in the monthly payment they can afford. Um, and then they get told how much they can actually spend on a house. Um, so the lower the interest rates, the more of a house people can afford. Um, and over the 25 year period, the rates kept dropping and the amount of, that, the people, that people can actually spend on a house goes up. Um, so this supports rising housing prices. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So that's that's certainly one factor. Interest rates doesn't really seem like they're going to go much lower yeah. because, you know, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know we've all heard about negative interest rates, but there is a limit to that. Um, so the other thing that's really important to look at with housing is new homeowners. So what do you need to do? You need to come up with a down payment. Um, we hear all the time, obviously, people saving up for a down payment. Um, once you've purchased a home, you're sort of already in this environment, right, where if housing prices go up, and you sell your house, you'll have enough of a down payment to move into something else. So you're looking more at that interest rate level and affordability. But if you're a new homeowner, which is a really important part of the market, you need to come up with a down payment. Uh, so where are we right here? Well, houses are really unaffordable, especially for people that, uh, that do not have one right now. Um, so housing price growth has really... Um, outstripped uh, income growth in Australia. Um, so right now, um, 
country holistically, 135% of annual gross income just to raise that 20% deposit, um, which is pretty, pretty extraordinary. So, um, so if you look at Sydney, for example, where we are now, um, so home price to income ratio is now 9.3. So that means a typical house in Sydney costs 9.3 times more than the median annual house income. Yeah. And then one other thing about those returns is that they're overstated and they're just looking at the purchase price and it doesn't really take into account any other cash flows that went into the house. So you were talking about like renovations, repairs, remodels um, over 25 years, which is pretty common um, over that time period and can be quite significant. Um, but we'll take a dive into cash flows a little bit later. Yeah. And I think and I think that that's important that, you know, we get this headline 412 percent return and people fixate on that. And I think that's what people fixate on housing. Right. They bought it at a certain price. They sold it. In this case, let's say they bought a house at the beginning of this 25 year period, sold it at the end of the 25 year period. Um, a lot happens in 25 years and nobody ever thinks about all the money they put into their house, whether that's remodeling something, whether that's just replacing something that needs to be updated or just like you know, just the natural wear and tear, right? Nobody ever thinks of those. I think of those two headline numbers. Um, so we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about, or we have talked about some of the influences of those returns. So this historical returns, but this is an investing discussion, right? So I think we need to talk about investing. So we'll talk about investing in real estate. So People have always invested in real estate, um, at least for a long time. Um, traditionally, the way that this has happened is somebody's purchased a home that they live in, and then at a certain point in time, they will purchase a second property that they can use for rentals. So things have changed a little bit now, right? So there's this there's this new trend called rent vesting. So Shani, since, uh, why don't you explain what rent vesting is I, for us? I had actually not heard of this term um, until we sort of started talking about it for this podcast and then it started popping up everywhere. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. your phone heard you and now you're getting all the advertisements. But what, exactly. is, what is rent vesting? Okay. What have you learned about rent vesting? All right, so... Um, rent vesting is buying and owning an investment property while you're still renting. Um, and typically this means buying a property in a cheaper location than you live. Um, in a lot of these cases, these properties um, employ negative gearing, uh, where the investor borrows money, they acquire an income producing investment, so a house producing rent, um, and the gross income generated by the investment is less than the cost of owning and managing the investment. Yeah. And I got to say this concept of rent vesting when I moved to Australia sort of blew me away. There were people on my team that were living with their parents and purchasing property that they weren't living in. I mean, maybe I just have a worse relationship with my parents <laughs> and I wanted out no matter what. Um, but yeah, rent vesting is uh, sort of blew my mind. But, you actually um, send these things to your mother in the U.S. So she's going to really love hearing you say that. <laughs> she knows it. Um, well, I can go see her. So I send her webinars. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Let's talk about negative gearing a little bit. Um, so what happens when you're investing, investing in property, um, quote unquote, and employing negative gearing? So basically what you're doing is you are making an investment or betting on the fact that you're going to get capital appreciation, that those housing, that the housing prices are going to still go up. And the last time we did this, we talked about passive income, right? And so negative gearing is actually like the exact opposite of passive income. So passive income is you have a series of investments. They are generating cash flows for you, whether that's a dividend payment or whether it's sort of a normal real estate investment where you're actually getting back more rent than what you're paying. Um, so right 
off the bat, right, with negative gearing, you are cash flow negative, um, which uh, which is interesting. So, you know, we, we earlier we said we we're going to talk about cash flows, but we need to talk about cash flows in terms of in terms of apartments or houses that you're going to buy. So the biggest risk or one of the biggest sort of cash flow risks you have with rental property is number one, it's unoccupied. So you're not actually able to rent it out. Um, so you are getting no cash flows in from the property. And the other thing is obviously there's repairs, which can be quite lumpy and can be quite expensive. Um, so those are kind of the two risks. You know, if you sit there and look at that versus investing in the stock market, for example, um, you know your ETF. Even if you're even if you're investing in a stock or an ETF mm-hmm. that isn't yielding anything and isn't giving you a dividend or distribution payment, they're never going to call you up and say you need to put in more money um, without changing your ownership stake at all. So, negative gearing, you're amplifying those risks, right? You're amplifying those cash flow risks, um, and potentially could turn in a situation where you can't cover your mortgage, other expenses, um, et cetera. Yeah. So we've mentioned risk here. And one way you address risk is from diversification. Um, so when we invest, we're just trying to diversify away unsystemic risk and remain exposed to systemic risk. Um, when investing in the stock market, unsystemic risk is direct re- directly related to the company you are investing in, um, while systemic risk is the overall economy. So you want to buy enough shares in your portfolio so that most of the company-specific risk is diversified away while still having exposure to the overall growth of the economy. Um, so in housing, it's a lot harder to diversify, diversify away the unsystemic risk um, of the specific property you've purchased um, while remaining exposed to the overall property market. Yeah, right. So like, if you want to diversify away that unsystemic risk, you would have to buy a number of properties. All right. And we've, we've talked about from a stock market perspective, you know, we're looking like sort of what, 18 to 25. Um, it's very difficult for anyone to buy 18 to 25 properties, even like getting the diversification, diversification benefits of buying 10 properties is, is pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem is, right, you are buying this single property. And if something goes wrong with this property, you potentially could be in trouble. So we've talked about, uh, we talked about cash flows, obviously. But the other thing is, um, you know, you are making a bet if you're buying a specific property, whether it's in the city or suburb that you live in, or it's interstate, um, you are betting on that local market. Um, so potentially that suburb or wherever you bought this place, um, there could be changing preferences and people don't want to live there anymore. Um, there could certainly be local issues within economy. Um, so that's really the risk you're taking on by purchasing a single property. Yeah, and property has had a really strong run, um, but there are certainly some warning signs out there that um, indicate it might not be repeatable. And the strength of the property market was fueled at least partially by the long and sustained fall in interest rates, as we spoke about before, um, which is not going to happen again, given that rates are at a record low. Um, And the large price increases have impacted affordability um, for the first home buyers who are um, pretty critical to the market as well. And the price increases have created a situation as well where many investors are entering into investments that are cash flow negative, um, and this amplifies the risk associated with investing in property um, in the first place. So, yeah, finally, there's um, a large degree of unsystemic risk in real estate investments as well, like we spoke about. 
Yeah, and I think this is the portion where the real estate investors show up with torches yeah. and pitchforks <laughs> yeah. to come after us. But um, should we just like change the name of this to property bashes? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but one one important thing to remember is there are other ways that you can get access to real estate. Um, so you can certainly do that through listed real estate. Um, so whether you are buying a real estate investment trust, um, you could go into funds or ETFs that uh, that buy real estate uh, companies that own real estate. Um, there's many super funds um, that have a pre-mixed option. There is an allocation to direct real estate. So there are lots of ways to get exposure to the different parts of real estate, right? We've talked about residential real estate today, but there's certainly commercial, industrial, et cetera, um, farmland. So there's lots of different ways to get exposure to real estate um, that potentially has more diversification than buying a single house. Um, so should we move on to myth two? Let's do it. Okay. So for the second myth, um, we're going to talk about ESG. So ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Uh, and when we talk about ESG within the context of investing, it means we incorporate those um, concepts, so environmental, social, and corporate governance criteria through the investment process. All right. So environmental factors, they inclu um, include company behavior um, on issues like climate change, pollution, energy efficiency, renewable energy, from social, um, include things like a company's commitment to inclusion, diversity in the workplace, uh, fair wages, um, certainly forced labor um, that you, you hear about. Labor on me, so. You know, last time we did this, you told me that um, coming to your job felt like passive income <laughs> because you didn't do anything. So I don't know about the forced but label. But I've had my quarterly review since then. I'm still working here. So I feel I can push it a little bit more. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, and then finally, <laughs> governance factors um, include executive pay. Um, for example, Shani will not be getting a pay rise this year. Uh, political donations, lobbying, bribery and corruption, um, and then board level attention to some of the issues we talked about. Yeah, and traditionally ESG has been thought of as an exclusion list. So certain companies are removed from the investing universe if they don't meet um, the standards of investors. So you can remove sin stocks like tobacco companies or alcohol companies um, or coal or weapons manufacturing. Um, and this approach has given many investors the impression that ESG is about giving things up and basically making a trade-off between picking the investments that will give you the best return and picking investments that live up to certain moral standards and partnering with Satan. So... Partnering with Satan. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Satan every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, I think the religious aspect of it, um, you know, is interesting because that is where sustainable investing started. Um, so, you know, originally it was really, um, it was Quakers and Methodists in the U.S. and the U.K. that wanted their portfolios to reflect their values. Um, so I think that's why a lot of people have that impression. That's sort of still where we are. Um, but a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk about sustainable investing um, and what it means, but one thing to note is that it's growing in popularity. So global, global sustainable funds pulled in $45.6 billion during the first quarter of this year, compared to an outflow of $384.7 billion for the overall fund universe amid um, the coronavirus pandemic market sell-off that we had. It was popular. It's mm -hmm. misunderstood. So maybe we'll spend a couple minutes just talking about what is ESG investing today. So many investors now look at sustainability as a way to understand how vulnerable the companies they own are to all of these different ESG factors. So mm -hmm. we think about this from an investment standpoint, um, that's really an important change, right? So it's not necessarily reflecting your values 
or it can, but what it's really doing is it is looking at risk factors that are influencing a company. So, and it's looking at that full spectrum of risk factors. So generally, I think investors have really just focused obviously on economic risk factors um, and sort of competitive risk factors and, and things like that. Um, but it is really important to look at all of the long-term risk factors that are going to influence a company. And, you know, one example that I think really resonated with me when we first explained it, one of our analysts um, put it this way to me, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was good. So he used to cover Coca-Cola when he was in the U S he since moved over to Australia with Morningstar. And he said, how can I be a good analyst um, looking at Coca-Cola? If I'm not looking at the fact that we have increased levels of drought, water supply is certainly um, in many areas, very difficult to come by. And that's the key ingredient in the vast majority of Coke's products, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's key ingredient, obviously the soft drinks, but also they sell a lot of water. Mm -hmm. So how can he not take environmental factors into effect when we know that is lessening the water supply? Yeah. And um, when we look at risks at Morningstar, our annual analysts evaluate which environmental, social and governance issues are financially material for each company or industry, as well as how are companies tackling these material risks and how will these risks affect companies' long-term values as well. So um, ESG investing is less about trade-offs and more about not putting our heads in the sand as investors when we evaluate companies. Um, so we've seen recent examples with AMP and Rio Tinto uh, locally that demonstrate how ESG risks impact companies. Um, and if you don't think that Rio Tinto blowing up ancient Aboriginal caves has had an impact on the company's long-term value, or AMP hasn't had their brand impacted from the scandals coming out of not just the Royal Commission, but um, the handling of sexual harassment claims, um, it's very short-sighted. These issues have been detrimental to the long-term value of these companies and should be important to you as an investor or shareholder as well as a person. Yeah, right. So whether whether you care about the issue or not, as a shareholder, that should be important to you. Mm -hmm. So that's that's I think the important distinction. So let's go back to the original question, right? We asked how does ESG investing impact return? So Morningstar, of course, what we do, we did some research on it. Um, so we went back um, and we actually, we have a, now it's a division of Morningstar that we purchased called Sustainalytics. And that's all they do is ESG ratings. And that gets incorporated into our analyst ratings um, that we have here. But Sustainalytics went back 10 years. So this was done last year. So they went back to 2009 um, and they basically created a hypothetical portfolio of global stocks. What they did is they took all the stocks in the coverage universe, um, they ranked them all. Well, that's what they do anyway. So they have rankings on every uh, all these companies from, from a variety of ESG factors. And they basically put them into three different groups. So the top ranked ones um, who scored very well on ESG factors, middle ranked, you guys know what that probably means, and the lowest ranked that scored the weakest on ESG factors. And so what they simply did is they marched those portfolios forward 10 years, and looked at the returns. So the returns came in that top rated category. So the category that had the best ESG scores came in at 0.76% monthly return. The middle category came in at 0.78% and the lowest rated category came in at 0.75%. So what does that mean? Well, at the end of the day, um, ESG does not play a large role in returns. So it's not a trade-off. And as investors, obviously, you know, I guess some investors are just picking things purely by ESG. It means that if we go into that top-rated pool or the middle-rated pool, and then we try to evaluate stocks on traditional measures, we're not missing out on anything by not investing in stocks with lower ESG ratings. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's pretty clear that using um, that investing using ESG factors is not coming at the expense of maximizing returns. Um, so that allows us in, as investors to find companies that match and represent our values. But as we said before, it also allows us to take an honest look at the risks um, that companies we own face. Yeah. All right. So that's two. We have one more to go. Yeah. <laughs> Many people think that individual investors have no chance against professional investors, right? We hear this all the time, um, you know, that the market is somehow rigged in professional investors' um, favor. And, you know, I think this is a really bad myth because a lot of people use it um, as an excuse that holds them back from investing. So they don't invest in the first place or they think they need a lot of money to go out and hire a professional. And well, we'll get into why this is a problem. Yeah, so this is a really big one. And this myth holds people back from even starting their investing journey. And those delays can be really costly um, since you have less time to compound. And so let's tackle this myth. Many people look at all the advantages that investment professionals have. So that could be um, time to dedicate to investing, tools, data, research, and their education and training. Um, and they think that they have no chance against that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there is, we don't like to use financial jargon, but we'll throw this out there, but then we'll explain what it means. Um, so what we're talking about is something that is called edge. Um, so as I said, it's a classic bit of investing jargon, and it just refers to the advantage that one investor would have over another. And then, of course, goes into the source of that advantage. So, you know, it's important, and we talked about this before, it's important as an individual investor to think about what edge you have. So what kind of competitive advantage you have and make sure that your investing strategy fits into it. But let's, uh, let's go through edge. So the first one is I'm doing the first one, informational. All right, so informational. So an informational advantage basically refers to the fact that I know something that um, is not widely known or other people don't know, uh, or nobody else knows, I guess. So widely known or nobody else knows. Um, and, you know, very important for the purpose of this discussion, we are talking about investing legally. So obviously, you know, one definition of this is insider trading, or literally somebody knows something they shouldn't know, we are excluding that. Um, we're not telling you to go break the law. And also that <laughs> doesn't really happen much. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it's not a giant source of edge anymore. And basically because over time, there've been a lot of regulations that have been put in place um, to really prevent this and make sure that information is disseminated widely and publicly um, and people don't know things. And this has even changed in my own lifetime, yes, I know I'm really old, but you know, in the US there's something called Regulation FD, fair disclosure, where analysts weren't allowed to speak to company management anymore um, unless it was recorded and publicly available to go on there, right? So even, even investors can't speak to management anymore. I feel like you're preempting all my old jokes now, Mark. You're doing half my job for me. Yeah, I know, because you've beaten me down um, and I have no <laughs> self-esteem left, so. Okay, um, let's talk about the next edge. So it is um, analytical. So analytical edge is the ability to interpret um, widely available information in a better way. So it can manifest itself in many ways and can consist of um, a quantitative model that interprets data in a different way or simply an individual that has a deep knowledge of an industry and can better predict the impacts of a company strategy, a legal or regulatory change or a business trend. And this is what our analysts do at Morningstar. Um, so they take the information and attempt to analyze it in a way that provides an advantage that is expressed through our ratings that we give. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So structural edge. 
So that refers to any constructs that govern the way an investor goes about the investing process. So we'll, we'll explain that a little bit. Um, but this is a huge difference between the way individuals invest and professionals invest. Um, so professional investors, there are a lot of constructs around the way you invest, right? So investing is your job. That means you are worried about uh, career progression, compensation, what the business goals are, and all of that can influence the way that you actually invest. Um, and it basically means that a lot of professional investors have competing priorities. Um, so they're trying to support the company that they work for um, because they want to maximize their own compensation. Um, like they, for example, wouldn't go on a webinar and like spout <laughs> off about how they don't do any work. Um, but what that really means is that sometimes there are these sort of disparate um, influences um, that really induce investors sort of walk away from potentially wise investing decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll spend a little bit more about this in a second, but why don't you close us out with the, uh, with the last piece of edge. Okay. So the last piece of edge is the last piece of edge. Yeah. <laughs> is behavioral. Um, and it's probably the most interesting and least understand understood investing edge. Um, and it's grounded in the fact that, um, we as humans, we're hardwired to make poor investing decisions. And that's because, um, as much as we don't want to admit it, we're driven by fear and greed and fear and greed is a formula for buying at the top of the market and selling at the bottom of the market. Um, so both in individuals, Individual investors like us and professional investors as well um, create elaborate models um, or theories designed to dictate when and why and um, to buy or sell a security. Um, despite these models, there's still a high probability that an investor will panic when the market um, is going down and um, fear missing out on the reward when it keeps climbing as well. All right, great. So we've gone through four sources of edge. Something more interesting out there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think someone's just locked out, but someone's coming to help her. Okay. Well, I think we yeah. can finish and then yeah. let them in. Um, all right. So let's go through these four. Um, we need to close the curtain. Yeah. You're easily distracted. Um, so let's go through these four different pieces of edge. Um, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about where, you know, we think individual investors do have a real advantage over professionals. Um, so as we talked about sort of from informational perspective, there has been this sort of democratization of, um, research and data in investing. I'm somewhat proud to say that Morningstar has played a huge role in that. And that was really why Morningstar was founded. Um, so, you know, nowadays, anything we all have too much information and data and sort of the skill is ignoring things that are relevant and then trying to uh, figure out what to actually pay attention to. Yeah. Like you should be paying attention to this <laughs> and not what's happening out in the hallway. That's an example. You're right, you're right. Yeah, um, so professional investors potentially have the advantage with analytical edge um, because of training and education, um, but there's nothing that stops an individual from getting the same knowledge. Um, there's an overwhelming amount of resources available to learn more about investing. So um, with a little bit of reading and self-study, you can learn all the same techniques that professionals use. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's an important one. And then structural edge. So what we talked about before is probably the biggest advantage you have um, as an individual investor. And I want to go through a couple examples since I probably didn't explain it very well. Um, but, you know, professional investors, and this is not an indictment of professional investors, it's just saying they're competing priorities. And there's a lot of pressure to obviously look at their career, look at compensation. Um, all that's important to everyone, right? Taking care of your family. Um, but this is where there can be some problems. So let's let's talk about a couple like investing um, principles that uh, that 
can be impacted by this. So, you know, number one, long-term investing, right? So we all know that it's very, very important to take a long-term view. Every professional you talk to, almost every investor you talk to says that they are a long-term investor, but let's look at what professionals actually do. So they operate in an environment that really discourages this. Um, and you know, part of that is our problem as individual investors and how we react to things. Um, but there is a lot of pressure over basically one-year periods that if you are a fund manager, that you need to not fall too far behind your peers at the end of the day. Um, and the reason for that is that money starts flowing out. Um, so a lot of professional investors become closet indexers, which means that they are allocating money, even if they're active, I'm talking about active managers here, means that they are probably trading a lot more than they should be. Um, and they don't really have the patience to wait for a stock that is very undervalued to be recognized by the market and actually return to a valuation level that's more appropriate. Um, so what do we do? We did a survey here at Morningstar. Um, so we looked at U.S. domestic equity funds and the turnover rate. So basically the turnover rate of the securities in that fund was 63%. So what that translates into is that's an annual turnover rate. means the average holding period of a stock in that fund was 19 months. So all of these people that are sitting around talking about how they are long-term investors are not long-term investors. They are churning their portfolios and they're doing that because they're chasing performance because they're worried if they fall too far behind, flows will go out of their fund, and that's the way that their company makes money, right? The size of the uh, the size of the uh, AUM in there, the assets under management, um, also leads to a lot of other bad outcomes, right? You know, tax outcomes which are not theirs, which are passed on to investors in those funds, um, and then there's certainly transaction costs. Um, so. A lot of people, despite saying they're long-term investors, are under this career pressure to not fall too far behind their peers or the index, um, and that has a really big structural disadvantage to, uh, to professional investors. Yeah, and they also have some disadvantages when it comes to the most well-known thing in investing, which is buying low and selling high. And the structure of many funds make this hard to execute, and this is because past performance has an outside, um, outsized influence on fund flows. Um, funds that have done well receive influxes of new cash to invest, um, while poorly performing funds are forced to sell securities to meet cash outflows. So this can force um, the hand of even well-meaning professional investors into doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, so many professional investors don't want to carry large cash balances um, and they cause portfolios to differ, differ significantly from their associated index or benchmark, which um, reflects poorly on them. So in an effort to prevent cash balances from accumulating, um, funds will invest the incoming cash. And in many cases, they're investing when the assets that they hold are overpriced. Um, the opposite occurs when investors withdraw funds um, after poor performance. So fund managers are forced to sell in order to generate cash to send back to investors. Um, they're often selling at exactly the same time that assets are likely cheap. Um, individual investors don't have to worry about fund flows at all um, and it doesn't influence their behavior in that way so they can concentrate on un the underlying value of the assets that they hold um, and their long-term goals as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think one, one important thing on both of those topics is a lot of individual investors do the same things, yeah. right? Like it's individual investor behavior that's influencing this other behavior that a one year um, 
a one-year miss against a benchmark or against peers will cause everyone to switch funds. Like we know that that's terrible behavior from an individual investor as well. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying is that you do have an advantage of an individual investor because you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Um, so yeah, I think that's an important point. Like it must have killed you since you love fun so much to you know say <laughs> anything negative about them. But uh, but anyway, the last uh, the last piece of edge behavioral edge. Um, so. Another place where I think individual investors can have a really big advantage. Um, so what do you need to do in order to take advantage of behavioral edge? So you really need to internalize the notion that investing is more than just this completely rational uh, mathematical analysis of risk and return. Um, you know, what you're doing is you're basically struggling with yourself and tuning out irrelevant information, have the strength to stick to your plan um, when there's a lot of volatility in the market um, and stop following the herd, which is basically what those other points were around structural. Structural. So um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you have patience, if you can figure out behaviorally how you are influenced, we're all different um, by, uh, by volatility, for example, and you can go through some of that short-term pain by staying invested and sticking with your plan. Um, it's a real advantage that you have over professional investors. Yeah, and one of the th great things about investing is that it's an anonymous exercise where you have a lot of control over the outcomes that you receive. So the market doesn't care about your background or your education and what matters is that you work hard to understand um, how to invest and that you stick to a disciplined approach. Um, disciplined in how you save your money and disciplined in sticking to your plan when the markets go through short-term volatility. All right, so Shani, we talked through three different investing myths. I don't know. What are some takeaways that people can take from this? I mean, they are very different myths, right? So to try to make this a little bit cohesive. Yeah. So um, the first is that one of the key mantras in investing is that future performance may not repeat the past. Um, as investors, our job is to look forward and figure out what types of investments best align to our goals. Um, that not, may not be what worked for your parents, and it might not be what everyone says um, is the best place to earn a good return. The second is that your beliefs and performance can go together. Uh, even if ESG issues aren't near and dear to your um, heart, it would be folly as an investor to look at companies in a silo without considering how sentiment can impact share price. Um, and the last takeaway is that the only barrier to being a successful investor is the effort and time you are willing to put into learning and the discipline to put together a plan and stick with it. Um, so I think that's that's it. Yeah, right. So the next time we are back together, we are going to talk about funds and ETFs, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Which is your favorite topic. That's on Tuesday. So once again, a reminder, if you like what we're doing, we would love a review or rating. There's also an email address in the episode notes. So if you have any questions, comments, or future topics, send that along. Yeah, and if you'd like to show your support, uh, please follow and share this with any friends and family looking to learn a little bit more about investing. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. Any advice in this video is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.